He told me I had to keep it quiet, that it was absolutely vital to his safety and the U.S. government that I couldn't tell anybody, anybody. He stressed that. And then he asked me for help. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about father figures, daddy issues, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We talk to fascinating people about how much they did or didn't know about the man who helped create them and make them the person they are today. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. I'm Erin Hosier. Sheila Anderson was just 14 years old when she started helping her CIA operative father on his assignments spying on Russian targets during the height of the Cold War. Today, in her first ever interview about the memoir she's writing about her extraordinary relationship with her dad, you'll hear what it's like to figure out at age 10 that daddy has a secret life, despite his regularly managing to evade grown men the world over with his many disguises. When most of us were in boring old high school, Sheila's coming of age was filled with international travel, multiple aliases, dangerous missions, and a world-class education in the art of manipulation. Sheila speaks so astutely about the psychological fallout of trying to unlearn those skills as she parents her three sons. But there's lots of humor, too, and you'll want to hear about Dad's second act in retirement, how he influenced his daughter's own career as an interpreter for some of the world's most powerful leaders, and generally lets us in on how accurate shows like Homeland and The Americans really are. Okay, let's hear from Sheila. I loved Nancy Drew when I was a child. I read a lot of Nancy Drew. There weren't as many books in those days to read for kids and young adults as now, and she was one of my favorites. And I wanted to be a detective when I grew up. Then I thought I'd be a lawyer like her dad, and I ended up not doing that. But I definitely went into Nancy Drew mode after my father told me when I was 10. He didn't mention the word CIA because I was too young to understand what that was. And he actually didn't say the word spy, using a lot of words I didn't understand about intelligence and the government and patriotism and communism, many words I didn't know. But somehow children just can see through. Yeah. He kind of looked shocked and he was just like, oh no, everything I've done just didn't work. And he's like, no, no, not a spy. And then he went into another long rambling, using lots of adult words I didn't get. And I listened to all that and then I said, well, do you have a raincoat? <laughs> and he said he did. And I'm like, okay, so you're a spy. So then after that, I started investigating a little bit. Okay, so let's go back because you were 10 in 1972, right? That's correct. And you were living abroad. You're American. You were born in the States. Do you want to talk about just the trajectory of your moving around as a kid? I was born in Florida on a naval base. My father was in flight training, like those airplanes that land on aircraft carriers. He should have gone to Vietnam. Everyone in his flight class actually died in Vietnam. He was lucky in that he was in a car accident and grounded on the ships, so he wasn't able to go to Vietnam. In fact, he was in the Cuban Missile Blockade during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and for that, he is buried now in Arlington Cemetery. So he he was in the Navy. Then he got out of that because you don't spend very much time at home and then had a career crisis for a while, went into the hotel business for a little while. And then he joined the CIA. I guess I was about five or four or five. 
went into training right. and ended up in Nairobi, Kenya, where we started our adventures overseas. I was about six when we got there and we were there for three and a half years. And then we had to leave suddenly. He went off on a yeah. business trip. He was working for a company called Intercontinental Hotels, which is probably known to many of your listeners as a luxury hotel. And he was responsible for sales for Africa, which was a real job. It was, I found out later, his cover job. The U.S. government had an agreement with American corporations that were patriotic and trying to help, I guess. So he did that during the day, and at night he ran around being a spy, I guess. I wasn't really aware of what was going on. Then we left very suddenly, and I was told, when I say suddenly, my father went on a business trip, he came home, we packed up, and we were right. out of there within a week or two, which is a lot to pack up a whole household of stuff and two kids and everything and just move. And we went to Paris and he told me that he was taking a leave of absence, meaning he wasn't going to be working, but he'd be paid. And we yeah. went to Paris and I kind of bought that story. And it wasn't until we had been there for a while, I started asking a lot of questions. I was a little inquisitive or maybe the way we left and everything was just a little weird. I don't know. Something must have aroused my suspicions. And I started asking my mom questions about, well, where's the money coming from? Because we were living in the 16th arrondissement in Paris. And I right. knew enough to know that it was expensive. As I learned French, I started interpreting between my father and the landlady and other people. And I guess they needed to allay my fears. But more importantly, my mother had met a Russian woman at the Alliance Francaise where she was taking classes, who ended up being married to the second in command in the Soviet embassy. Brezhnev was the, I think, I don't know if they call him a president or a premier, but he was the head of government in the Soviet Union at the time. And this man was very close to him. So he became a target and the CIA said to my dad, well, okay, we've dropped you here while we figure out what to do with you. Now we want you to try and recruit this guy. And I learned many years later that the reason we left Nairobi suddenly was my dad's cover appeared to be blown. So they got right. him out of there real quick because he didn't have diplomatic immunity since he was working for a hotel. Mm -hmm. And if he had been found to be guilty of espionage by the Kenyan government, they could have arrested him and thrown him in jail. And nothing the U.S. government could do about that. I just think it's so interesting that as a 10-year-old... It was money that piqued your interest <laughs> or like got you thinking. Because when I was the same age, I I remember asking my dad, dad, how much money do you make? And he got so angry. I guess this was the 80s or something. And he was like, it's none of your business. Don't ever ask anyone that again. And it's just at that age when you're trying to like figure out like, how does the world work? There's nice things and there's nice places to live. And what made you so uh, worried about money? I think it was just the unusualness of my father not going to work every day anymore. He had gone to work every day of my life and suddenly he was at home helping my mom with my, at that time, three month old brother. And I didn't really understand what a leave of absence was. I probably asked some questions about that. But I think it's because he wasn't acting like other dads. I didn't ask quantity how much. I think I was just worried about basic survival. Yeah. I think somewhere that my dad had started instilling this idea of survival in me and all of us a long time earlier. I don't know if he did it on purpose. I actually asked him when I saw him the last time before he died. He used to say when I was a child, he would say that he would ask us to do something, my mother or me. And we'd say, why? And he'd say, well, it's good training. Mm. And when I say ask us to do something, he asked my mother to learn how to skin and gut an antelope when we were in Africa. 
And we have pictures of really? her with her hand inside the gut of an antelope where they were making a face. And the idea was that survival, that, you know, if something happened in, I guess, a nuclear holocaust or something that, you know, we would be able yeah. to hunt for food and survive. So the survival thing was a real strong message. And I think I was a little worried about how was my family surviving in this expensive city. And so at what point did you find out that your dad was a spy for the CIA and that needed to be kept quiet? So we had been there maybe nine or 10 months. This was around September, October of 72. So I had done most of the school year, started a new one. Spoke French by that point. My mother had taken those French classes during the summer. She had taken me with her, actually, so we could do something together, I guess, as a mother-daughter. So mm -hmm. I was 10, and in the same conversation, you know, as dads do, he called me into the living room for a serious conversation. Usually you're in trouble when you get called, to, or at least I was usually in trouble when I got called to the living room, but I wasn't in this instance. And he pretty much told me that he was a spy, that he had a job, not to worry about money, that we had income coming in, no worries there. All of that in that same conversation. And he also told me I had to keep it quiet, that it was absolutely vital to his safety and the U.S. government that I keep it quiet, that I couldn't tell anybody, anybody. He stressed that. And then he asked me for help. He said that he needed my help, that he was trying to work with this Russian family and he needed my cooperation to play with their children so that we could socialize with them as families. He didn't really explain about recruiting and all of that, targeting and all that stuff. He didn't really get into that. He just said he needed my help to play with the kids. It sounds like an easy ask, but it wasn't so easy because they didn't speak English or French. They only spoke Russian. Soviets at that time were sort of, well, until really, I guess, the 90s, they had to live in compounds or they were sort of protected and went to their own schools and didn't get to mix with mm -hmm. people when they were outside of the Soviet Union. The fear being that someone would convince them to defect, to leave their country and betray all their secrets. So it was hard to play with kids that don't speak your language. Yeah. And I think also because they were sort of culturally isolated, nothing seemed to work, even sign language and so forth. It was hard and I had to ask the mother how to say, play hide and go seek. I asked her for that. And she told me, which I repeated endlessly so I could get it right because the sounds are so different. But then they responded with a mm -hmm. torrent of Russian words, which I didn't understand. And I hadn't anticipated that if I said a few words in Russian, they might respond in Russian. And now I have an even bigger problem. So in the end, I just gave up and I started letting them choose what we would do and following them, just doing whatever they were doing. The longest you would ever stay in one place wasn't very long, right? It was, I think my family was a little exaggerated compared to most CIA families, but we moved from the age of about 12 or 13 to when I left for college, we moved every 18 months, Wow, which is really a lot. I think it's more normal to move every two to three years. Some of it was because of we had to leave. And in some instances, we needed to go back to the States for some reason and asked to go back. And then my father always hated headquarters. He hated Washington. Most people don't think of spying as a bureaucratic job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's certainly not when you're overseas running around in the streets, you know, getting people to commit treason, meaning getting them to tell their government their secrets to our government. But in Washington, it's a desk job. And there's paper pushing. And my dad wasn't really happy doing that. I don't think he was particularly good at it. I know he was good at running around convincing people. At one point later in his career, they actually would fly him into places specifically to recruit people. 
And can you give a kind of scenario? I mean, what I know about uh, spies and, and like Russian ops and the CIA is all from The Americans, which is a show. It ran on FX from 2013 to 2018, starring Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese. Takes place in the 80s, I think the whole decade. A spy thriller following a married couple who are two Soviet KGB intelligence officers posing as a boring American suburban family. They have two kids who are American born, right? And so we follow their kids are like young adolescents. And then by the time the show wraps up, their teens, especially the older daughter, Paige, who does find out about her parents' true identity. You liked the show, didn't you? What did they get right? I did. I watched all six seasons with my husband. First of all, it's a good show and there's a lot of suspense and it keeps you going along. And I was curious to see how much of it would be realistic and believable. And the interesting thing for me was a lot of my colleagues or people I work with were also into watching it at the time. We all kind of binge watched it. And some of my colleagues and friends are Russian. Oh. So they would comment on the Russian side of things of whether it was realistic or not, the way they talk to each other and things like that. But I was curious about Paige because I had experienced something similar. You told me when you were 14, your dad actually enlisted your help targeting a Polish ambassador in Uruguay. <laughs> yes, that's true. So let me explain targeting a Polish ambassador, the reason he was targeting him. So in the Cold War, the Soviet Union had control of Eastern Europe mm -hmm. and any Russians or people from Eastern Europe were considered hard targets. And you actually got an automatic promotion if you managed to recruit one of them, I believe, or at least that's what my father said. They were very difficult to get, though. So people chased them all over the world. So even though we were in Uruguay, my dad was trying to, in addition to spying on the Uruguayan government and getting them involved in the dirty war, which is a part of American and Latin American history where they were picking up terrorists and arresting them and torturing them and so forth. But later, looking back on it, you have to wonder if they were really terrorists. But he was also chasing these hard targets. And the Polish ambassador was one that he went after. So I was about 14, going on 15. I should say that my mother was out of town. Her mother was dying of cancer, and she had to go back to the States. I think if she'd been there, that sanity might have prevailed. But my dad was on his own. And his boss and the guys in Washington. And this story is sort of an illustration of something that I've come back to a lot, which is that the end justifies the means. It wasn't mm -hmm. said explicitly, but in the Cold War, the mentality, especially coming right after the Second World War, it's hard for us to understand this now, almost 80 years later. But they had a mindset that communism and the Russians were an existential threat, right. so much so that it justified using a 14-year-old. So it started off fairly innocuously of my dad invited the Polish ambassador and his wife and their 22-year-old daughter, Katrina, for dinner. This was normal. We entertained a lot, had mm -hmm. people over all the time. I got to play hostess because my mom was out of town. So I tried to step into her shoes and, and do what you need to do and help my dad with these things. And so I got to meet Katrina and sort of became friends with her. But it wasn't entirely by accident that I became friends with my My father encouraged me to. And he and his boss called me the secret weapon. Really? Because as a child, I mean, a teenager, I put on airs let's, like all teenagers. And I pretended I was older than I was. But she was willing to be friends with me. And so he would get me to ask questions 
And when I went to their house for lunch, my father gave me a list of things to look for in their house. Like what kind of books did they have if there were any books in English or how was it decorated? And you might wonder, well, why are they looking at all this kind of stuff? It's because they're gathering a psychological profile to figure yeah. out whether the other person is someone that they can recruit or not. The most important question is, do they really believe in communism? Have they drunk the Kool-Aid mm -hmm. or not? If they haven't, you might be able to recruit them to help the U.S. government to promote democracy and freedom in their country by helping the CIA. Wow. So it went from innocuous things like me just visiting with her and asking questions to there was a dinner party actually celebrating supposedly my birthday and hers where my father gave me explicit instructions of questions he wanted me to ask that it was hard for him to ask. Questions about did they believe in God and religion, bring that topic up. Because again, you see, if you were a communist, you wouldn't believe in God right. because they were atheists or they weren't allowed to believe in it. So if they admitted over an informal dinner like that. It would blow a cover, right? Right. So it went from, from those things to me actually writing reports uh -huh. on every interaction I had. My dad's code name was Yidlika, and they started having me file my reports under Yidlika 2. Wow. <laughs> they actually went back to headquarters, so I know that the people in Washington were aware of all of this. This wasn't just my dad and his the station chief up to shenanigans. Right. What I remember most vividly was they had me fill out something called a PQR Part 3, Personal Questionnaire Report. It was a third part of it, and it was about the psychology of the person they were looking at. So they were sort of using my observation to try and form a picture of this ambassador. As a 14-year-old girl. Well, there were two things that happened for me. One was I was terrified of making a mistake uh -huh. and saying something that wasn't true, and then they would get the wrong picture of the guy. I realized I actually observed a lot more than I realized consciously. So they asked me questions like, are the subject's shoes polished or not? You know, so real detailed questions about a person, the way they carry themselves and handle themselves. They would give me situations. It's like a questionnaire you're filling out. And then you would have to say whether they would respond in A, B, or C way like wow. that. Sort of multiple choice psychological profiling, I guess. So this went on until my mom came home and attended one of these dinners. And then she put her foot down and said, are you crazy? You're using a 14-year-old girl. <laughs> And I put some sanity in the whole thing and stopped it. So I was suddenly prevented from seeing Christina again. But the end of the whole story was, so my father did pitch this guy, meaning yeah. he asked him if he would like to work for the U.S. government. And the guy said no. And then he turned around and asked my dad to commit treason against our government. <laughs> so they were both after each other. So they sort of <laughs> trusted each other enough to ask each other to lie for? Well, there's a long process that goes. It's called developing the target. So the developing the target is this process of getting to know them seemingly by accident or randomly. You develop the relationship like you would a friendship. You try and sure. make it look organic. Mm -hmm. You're collecting information about this person to see whether they're susceptible to working for you. And then you pitch them, meaning it's like a sales pitch, I guess. You ask them if they want to work for the U.S. government for money, you try and blackmail them for idealistic reasons like, oh, you don't really believe in communism? Come help us. We'll, we'll help you get democracy and freedom in Poland again. You do that, and then they work for you and or they don't. In this instance, the man turned my father down. But then he asked my dad, which is kind of weird. So it seems like all along, he was playing the same game against my father. 
probably now looking back, I didn't realize it at that time. I realized Katrina was probably their secret weapon and also trying to get information from me about my dad and stuff. I think, I don't know, but it sort of strikes me as odd now looking back as a 50 something year old woman. Why would a 22 year old girl hang out with a 15? I was going to ask you that. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. And also, what was she doing home anyway? Why wasn't she at university? I remember her showing me pictures of her boyfriend. He was still in Poland. Why did she come hang out in Uruguay with her parents? And I never really did ask that. I never knew. But I think there was something funky going on on their side, too. I think this was a very isolated incident. I don't think the U.S. government goes around using kids normally. But I do think they'll do whatever they can in the circumstances, or they did, to try to win. So that's my code name, Yedlika, too. (laughs) Wow. Of course, I think it did create a stronger bond with my father. And for sure, I think he built a lot of confidence in me, in trusting me with such quote unquote important work. I have a lot of self-confidence now. And I think that's because he trusted me with these little tasks. Even just the idea of standing in for your mother, you know, like the adult woman, we need that partner to help manipulate the dinner party scene. Yeah. And make sure the forks are all, how many forks you're supposed to have and knives and the right glasses (laughs) and all the rest of it. Yeah. I think it was sort of part of my personality structure to want to help or something. Everybody, we all do things to make ourselves more lovable and Mm -hmm. not that anybody made us do it, but I think, yeah, it was my way of trying to help, I suppose. And then did that ever come up later in your life or in your career? Does anyone? I never told anybody about this. No. Do you think you're allowed to talk about it? Well, It's been more than 25 years, actually 30-something years. So I think with the Public Information Act, which is a 25-year deadline on things, I don't think much can be said about that. Okay. And it's my life. I never signed any pieces of paper with the CIA. My dad did. And he's deceased. So he never betrayed them. And I didn't either, really. I mean, the CIA isn't what it was in the Cold War. I'm sure it's quite a different place now. This is more of a historical retrospective, I guess. I think a lot of what was portrayed in the Americans was very true from what I know in my experience. For example, all the polygraph stuff where they're teaching somebody how to beat the polygraph, that was very accurate to me. And it's not something that I think has been portrayed in very many spy shows or movies. The part about Paige telling her parents' secret I was a little surprised at that, to be honest, but maybe that's a very personal thing. For me, I would never have dreamt of betraying my father or our family's loyalty. Yeah. So Paige doing that kind of surprised me, the lack of trust. On the other hand, I can see that from her point of view, she was raised as an American in the United States her whole life and was raised in an environment where the Soviets and the Russians were the bad guys. And suddenly she finds out that her parents are the bad guys. Whereas in my case, I was raised, first of all, moving around. But when the story was presented to me, my dad was a good guy and they were the bad guys. If my family had been in the Soviet Union and I was told that my dad was a spy, I might have had a different reaction. So I guess you have to take that into account. The issue of telling children is certainly a problem, I think. Yeah. And even parents and spouses, I know there's no policy on it in CIA, to my knowledge. The people that I met over the years, I remember one of my dad's colleagues in, uh, we lived in Uruguay for a while when I was a teenager, and this guy was what they called a rookie. He was a new guy. He hadn't told his own parents what he was doing. My dad told a lot of people, I think, looking back. And to put that in perspective, I later learned, again, as a teenager, so my father revealed more over time over the years Mm -hmm. as I matured and was able to understand it better. And as I guess he trusted me more, 
the KGB had a file on me, on my brother, my mom, my whole family, and they knew who my dad was. And the CIA knew who their operatives were as well, to a large extent. So him telling his mother or me or my mom, no big deal, really, in a way, as long as we don't go around advertising it to the local government and get him in trouble. Meanwhile, we could help a lot. For us, it was kind of a family business, as it was in the Americans at the end. Paige ended up helping her parents. You're working on a book and it's called, Do You Have a Raincoat? What Spies Would Wear. I loved Get Smart when I was a kid. Before we moved to Nairobi, I watched Get Smart, I Dream of Jeannie and Bewitched, I think were my favorite shows. So that's where I got that idea because Maxwell Smart wore the trench coat. I didn't know it was called a trench coat. We called it a raincoat in my family. And it wasn't until years later I learned that that was called a trench coat. So yes, that's where I got that idea. But of course, over time, I got a little more sophisticated about what it was all about. It was more than just running around with a raincoat on and certainly more than James Bond, which is why I'm writing the book, because I think a lot of people have heard stories about CIA officers from the case officers, the spies themselves, and mm-hmm. they tend to get into foreign policy issues and stuff like that a lot. I do a little bit in my story, but I really wanted to show the human side. What if Maxwell Smart or James Bond had a family in tow? And would he tell them? Would they participate? How would it affect them? It changes everything. And also to show that the CIA, which has had a lot of ups and downs in public opinion, mm-hmm. at least in my lifetime, and I think even really since 9-11, if you think about it, there have been ups and downs with the problems with enhanced interrogation or torture or whatever it was they did trying to find the terrorists. I think it's important to understand that the people who do this, that they're human beings with families and love and foibles. And most of them, at least what I saw, were extremely idealistic, extremely patriotic I go so far as to refer to it as being dogmatic, almost like a religion. My dad rejected the religion of his mother. She was very religious, but I feel like the structure he embraced was the U.S. government and the ideas of democracy. He wore disguises. That is something that happens, right? He did, yes. I never saw him in disguises. They call them techs or TDYers. TDY stands for temporary duty. So the tech people who were either dealing with sweeping the house for bugs, they tailor-made the makeup and the disguises for the people like my dad. Okay. So they like have producers, basically. They're not their own makeup artist. I guess they would make a mold of the face. I remember they had these sort of suitcases with stuff in them, special equipment and things. So they would make something that my father would then put on, usually on his way to meet someone based on the stories he told me. I remember one story in particular where he and a colleague of his both had to wear disguises. And for some reason, they had to put them on while he was driving through a tunnel so that they came out the other side Wow. With disguises on. I'm not really sure why they chose to do it that way, but for some reason, logistically, it was necessary. He didn't put them on at home and he didn't have them on when he came home. And it was really when he was meeting other people that he put these things on because he had actual identities to go with some of these disguises. In Portugal, where I was about 17 and was even more savvy about what was going on, he had three official fake passports, meaning they were U.S. government issued passports, but they were for various identities that he had. And my dad, he had a sense of humor and he liked to play with things a little bit and sort of sneak things by the bureaucrats. So one of the stories he loved telling me with great glee about one of his passports was he chose the name Peter Blue. And of course, on a passport, you put the last name first and the first name last. So it shows up on the passport as Blue Peter. 
And he explained this to me and, I, and he <laughs> killed himself laughing. And I didn't really know what a blue Peter was. And I don't really want to explain it here. So I guess it wasn't all serious all the time. I think he had some fun with it. I think he enjoyed wearing the disguises and having the identities. So he had identities and aliases. Mm -hmm. The identities had actual paperwork to back it up like a passport. Aliases were just names he came up with and introduced himself to somebody at a cocktail party. But remembering who you introduced yourself to, I imagine, would be difficult over time. And I think he was stressed from keeping so many balls in the air. And they went after him. On one occasion, he was actually targeting not Portuguese people or Soviets when we were in Portugal, but Angolans, because there was a civil war in Angola. They have oil, so the United States was interested in Angola. It was at the time in the top 12 priorities for Jimmy Carter, who was the president. But we couldn't spy on the Angolans in Angola because we had severed our relationship with them, the United States government had. So we had no embassy there. So my dad was spying on them from Lisbon. And he made it look like there was a lot of people doing it, and when it was really just him. And the Angolans, I guess, got nervous and they, through some intermediary, asked to have a meeting with him. I guess you develop intuition about these things like you do in any profession. And after a lot of experience, you get a feel for things. He was nervous about this meeting. He asked my mother to go with him and sit in the car. Mm. He was supposed to meet these people in a hotel room. And instead of just going up and knocking on the door, he found out which room it was and then walked by and listened. And he heard a number of male voices and he thought, mm, this isn't good. And he left without meeting with them. And he found out later through, I guess, other of his assets that they were people who'd been sent to, if not kill him, hurt him. So I think that was stressful. So he started putting milk in his scotch. That was his, that was his answer. Not don't stop drinking the scotch, but just put milk in the scotch for the ulcer that you're developing. Not the first time we've heard that. You've heard that from other fathers putting milk in there. Kahlua in the insure. Uh I like that. That's great. Yeah. That's a different show. But I mean, so do you think he was in danger? Sometimes, sometimes. And he may have put other people in danger. For sure. For example, I know of one instance where someone was in, well, I can give two examples. One is that, so the same Angolan situation, which is, I knew more about what was going on there because I was 17 and was more aware. Also because he would ask me to translate documents for him sometimes. And he had a pilot that was what they call an asset, meaning working for him. The pilot was able to get in and out of Angola flying on the Portuguese National Airlines. And the pilot was getting his information about what was going on from a woman who was sleeping with the Minister of Defense. Mm -hmm. So of course, the Minister of Defense knows all the government's plans for a civil war, how they're fighting the rebels and all that. And one time the guy didn't show up at the appointed time and place. And I remember my father was freaking out because he was worried that the guy was dead. Fortunately, what had happened was the plane hadn't been able to leave. They had to make repairs. And usually in Africa, in those days, when there were delays, it would be 24 hours because they had to get parts in, fly them in to the country and fix the plane. They actually had a system where, let's say I I say to you on the phone, I'm going to meet you tomorrow at 11 o'clock at a cafe. We have an agreement between us that it's actually not tomorrow at 11 o'clock, it's today at 10. So they had these special arrangements for communications in case people were listening, also to protect. Interesting. The other way I came across the idea of, of the issue of safety for his assets, they have something called safe houses, which are apartments or places that the CIA rents. Right. And 
then the CIA agent, my father, case officer, can meet one of their assets in that apartment, which is not visible to the public. And sometimes they have what's called safe house keepers, meaning someone actually lives in that apartment, so it looks normal, but that person's in the know. Their rent is being paid by the CIA, which I did actually in Madrid. You were? I was a safe house keeper. Instead of sharing an apartment and living like you do when you're 21 or 22 years old, I had a nice apartment in Madrid that they paid for for me and they paid for my utilities. In exchange for that, I had to get out of there when they wanted to use it. And sometimes they came home and the door was, the chain was on. I couldn't get into my own apartment. So I had to go off and sit in a cafe and read for a while and wait. But it was worth it for the, (laughs) I thought. They wouldn't do that in the United States because the CIA is not supposed to really operate on U.S. territory. So at one point, your dad gives you a gun, right? So one of the things I emphasize in, in my story isn't just what he did for a living, but that his parenting style seems to have been affected by his CIA training. The story where he got me up in the middle of the night at one o'clock in the morning to find out what I'd done with my report card. I was disoriented and kind of interrogated me with shining a bright light in my eyes and standing me in the corner. <laughs> so what happened was my mother had to teach me how to read because when we arrived in Africa, there were no slots for places for me in in the first grade. She was a teacher, actually, an elementary school teacher. She taught me to read. I then tested at a higher reading level than normal grade. And my father made a big stink at the school that I should be doing fourth grade reading classes when I went into the second grade. But I didn't really like doing the workbook, and I didn't like reading what they told me to read. I wanted to read what I wanted to read, which was, you know, Anderson's fairy tales and, and Nancy Drew and things like that. So I got a D, as in dog, in reading. It was an interim report card, and it was in pen, and I, you know, stupidly tried to erase it, and I erased a hole in it. I really should have just tried to change the grade, but I wasn't that savvy when I was seven. I was really worried about, my father had made this big stink about me being able to read at a higher level and being so quote-unquote smart, and now I was going to make him look, I was afraid of shaming him, really, or embarrassing him. So I made this hole, and then I hid my report card. And the teacher kept asking for it signed, and I kept giving excuses that it had been lost or whatever. And and I kept praying, (laughs) because my grandmother was very religious. This is my father's mother. And she had said that if you really believed in something, you know, had faith, that God would answer your prayers. So I prayed fervently every night, right through chicken pox and everything. And God answered my prayers. He just didn't answer them the way I thought. I thought he would get rid of my teacher, Miss Hess. <laughs> Unfortunately, what he did was arrange for Miss Hess to run into my mother at the grocery store. So my father had come home from a business trip. I had a friend spending the night and everything seemed fine. And then at one o'clock in the morning, they got me up and told me to be quiet so I wouldn't wake up my friend and then brought me into their bedroom and shone a bright light in my eyes, had me stand in the corner. <laughs> They were interrogating me, where was my report card? And I guess maybe this is why my father chose to tell me later on what he did for a living, because in this instance, I lied through my teeth. I was really quite good at deception. And then he further kept asking while he had my mom toss my room for the report card and the workbook, which I had quote unquote lost because the teacher had to reconstruct the grade because she hadn't kept records of the grades. And then somehow in the move, I don't know what happened. It was pretty chaotic when we left Nairobi, but in Paris, I was in the basement looking through boxes for something. We were living in a furnished house because the government was telling my parents every two weeks, you'll stay another two weeks. So we had to live in a furnished place and be ready to go. But of course, after you've been there for a year, you know, you want 
this or that from the boxes. So my mother would send me down to get something out of the box and I came across my report card and my heart stopped and I just went cold, like, oh my God, remembering all of this. And I actually personally watched it be taken by the trash on the pickup day. I threw it away and made sure that it went out with the trash because I was just so afraid. It took years before I told my parents what had really happened there. But the gun story you mentioned, it might have been because my parents were from the South. My dad hunted the big game, five, you know, lions and elephants and all that stuff in Africa. And he had been in the Navy. He'd been in the military. So he was into guns. And he was also a zoology major at Tulane, I right? I know, that's true. Zoology in English. He had to get a degree to to please your your mom's family. That's true. Yes, he had dropped out of college. So there was a gun thing in the family. He had actually warded off an intruder during the Depression with a BB gun Mm. uh, in the middle of the night. My grandfather was, he was a traveling salesman and somebody had tried to break into the house and my my dad was about 10 or 11, had shot at this guy and warded him off. And there are a number of stories about guns in his family, so much so that when I took my son to a family reunion, after we left, we were sitting in the airport and my eight-year-old son turns to me and says, what's the story with guns in your family, mom? Mm. (laughs) I was like, oh, really? So this gun story may be just that. It may not be a CIA thing. I don't know. But we were living in Washington. He was down in Uruguay already. We were waiting to go to get my braces off and my grandmother was dying of cancer. So we spent the summer in the States and we were living in DuPont Circle. My parents had bought a house there. The top was rented out and we were living in the basement apartment, my mother, my brother and I. And my father had come home briefly. He actually got called back to headquarters. He was in trouble because the Russian family that my parents were trying to get, my mom had disobeyed orders from the CIA and my father and Mm -hmm. had written to the Russian wife. And the letter was intercepted by the French intelligence service, who then contacted the CIA. Now it turns out that the Russian family had been sent back to Moscow in disgrace because the wife had been embezzling funds from the Russian government. So actually, in retrospect, they actually tried to recruit the man to commit treason against the Soviets, hoping that he didn't really believe in communism and would help the Americans. Mm -hmm. He said no, he wasn't willing to do that. But looking back now at how desperate the wife was for money, she would have done it for money. Because people helped the U.S. government for two reasons in general when they worked for my dad, either because they were very patriotic or they were fighting for freedom for their own country and they wanted Mm -hmm. U.S. help or because they wanted the money. Because it's a dangerous thing to do. If their governments catch them, they can, depending on the country's legal system, the death penalty can be applied. Your listeners have probably read in the paper about American spies that have been caught and sent to jail. So it's a serious thing. So my father got called back to headquarters and had to defend, and my mom had to go and apologize and grovel for having disobeyed orders and told this woman, Galena, that she had written to her. They were focused on the man. My mom said, because she was spending as much time with them as as my dad was, said, I think the woman, Galena, would be a better target. I think she would do it for the money. They ignored my mom. Well, she wasn't a CIA case officer either. I mean, she wasn't trained, so valid point. But in the end, though, that woman embezzled money, proving my mom right. Yeah. And in my dad's career, there were not many women case officers. There weren't. There were reports officers. They did other things, but not where you run around in the middle of the night convincing people to commit treason. And when I actually entertained the idea of following my dad's footsteps, which I did, 
my dad at first was alarmed and then he's like, yeah, okay, maybe mm -hmm. that could work. But we talked about it and we realized that there were some parts of the world I would not be able to operate in as a woman in the 1980s and 90s when I was looking at a career. It wouldn't work in the Middle East. We didn't think it would. Yeah. We didn't think it would work in Africa or South America because we didn't think they would take a woman seriously. Looking back on it now, and thanks to TV shows, yeah. actually, Homeland. Claire Danes. She's so a great example of a woman operating in the Middle East with women. She uses men too, but women yeah. as a source of information. She can get at people that the men can't get at. But the mindset in the 70s and 80s and throughout my dad's career was very different. So it was a mindset issue, really. Now, of course, the last director of the CIA was a woman, Haskell. I would love to talk to her and find out what her career was like and how did she end up being the director. They were starting to recruit women at the end of my dad's career. She must have been lucky enough to land in the CIA at a time when change was happening. After mm -hmm. the wall came down, there was more willingness to take women seriously and so forth. My poor mother, I mean, she wasn't a spy. She wasn't CIA trained. She was helping. And yeah. they told her not to get emotionally involved, but she did. You can't help it if you become friends with somebody. Even if you know your husband's trying to get them to do things. My, my mother was genuinely friends with this woman. It's awkward sometimes, the line between the government yeah. and, and personal relationships. Well, I wanted to tell the gun story. Yes. In the early 70s, some of your listeners may know that there had been riots in Washington, D.C. in the late 60s. A lot of people had fled, and the cities were kind of empty, and they'd become dangerous. And then people were starting to come back in the early 70s because of the oil crisis. Mm -hmm. But at the time that we were staying in that apartment, it was very divided. I remember being shocked walking through DuPont Circle, which is now a posh area, but at the time there would be white people on one side and black people on the other, playing chess mm -hmm. and doing very peaceful things, but it was so segregated. Yeah. And there were old style drug stores and things like that. It wasn't all she-she like it is now. And my father thought it was dangerous. So because he had to go back to Uruguay and we were going to be staying in this apartment for another week or so, he called me into the back room and pulled out this little gold gun and said, I want you to defend the family if there's any intruders. Wow. And I said, but what about the guys upstairs? And he's like, oh, those hippies? Because they had waterbeds and long <laughs> hair and stuff. And he showed me how to hold the gun, just like Angie Dickinson. She holds her palm and supports her hand with the gun in it to hold it steady. Nobody did that in those yeah. days yet until she did that on TV. And I remember when she did, I was like, oh, that's what my dad showed me how to do. I was so proud. Anyway, he showed me how to shoot the gun. And I'm like, but what if I miss dad? And he's like, just aim and shoot. If you're close enough, you'll, you'll hit him. It's okay. Don't worry about it. And so I, I was a little scared. I have to say, I was very nervous after he left. Like, oh my God, what if somebody comes through here and I have to actually shoot this thing? Why was it gold, do you think? <laughs> I have no idea. That's all I remember about it was, it was a little gold gun. And then he further instructed me to take it apart and put all the pieces in my brother's toys and smuggle it in a Uruguay when we went down, which I did. Unfortunately, and good thing my dad had a good sense of humor because I put it in so many pieces. I was so thorough about it that it took him two years to reassemble. Two years? <laughs> two years, yeah. So you never had to use it? I didn't. Thank God, no. And your dad died of natural causes. I'm just struck by how, how close of a relationship you seem to have. In the book, it's, it's tender. It's sweet. There's like that real reverence, but there's a mutual respect. Yeah, I, I think the book also sort of documents my attempts at breaking away. I think it was hard 
don't know if it's harder than any other kid, but it was hard for me to assert my independence and break away from my family like you need to do. Because of the yeah. close relationship with my dad, the CIA and my dad were sort of all intertwined in one. To grow up, I had to sever my relationship with the CIA in order to be able to leave and go grow up. So I actually yeah. did sever my relationship after that Madrid incident. I worked for them in Paris as a translator. They did a background check on me and polygraphed me, did a lie detector test on me, and interestingly, did not give me top secret clearance to be a translator because they felt that I had told too many people. I had told a couple of boyfriends, even though I didn't tell them any details, just the fact of it. Right. They didn't really, in my opinion, they didn't take into account the fact that I was being asked to do the same thing that a case officer does, but without the training. Mm -hmm. And what did they really expect of second generation? Because this was all an experiment. My dad, there was one generation before him, but I think I'm the first second generation to sort of grow up in CIA families because it started after the war. And I don't think they gave much forethought, and rightly so, to the children and the families and what would they do. However, there are sort of rules for the spouses. Not really. Not no? Well, maybe there are policies now, but in the days of my mom, no. Okay. They didn't really, as I said, it was very much a personal decision for each case officer to tell his wife or not. This divorce rate was higher in the CIA than the regular population, which was already pretty high in the 70s, 80s, 50%, I think. And my mom was involved in this, actually. Her and her generation, they did organize themselves and advocated for their rights, which was that they were being dragged around the world, helping their husbands, helping the U.S. government, being patriotic in service, really, mm -hmm. to their country. But in doing so, they couldn't have their own careers. You can't have a career if you're moving every two or three years. So right. in recognition of that, it's actually enshrined in law, unlike most U.S. government agencies. If you've been married to a case officer for 12 years or more and spent five years or more overseas, you're entitled to half of your husband's pension, even if you get divorced or he dies. That's pretty incredible. That's sort of in recognition of the spouses. I think they trust them to keep their husband's secrets. But a child brought up in that and I'm defending myself here a little bit, I guess, but if you're brought up in that environment, you can't help but be a little cynical at the end of it. Mm -hmm. And in reality, the CIA was right, perhaps, not to grant me top secret clearance. I wouldn't have revealed anything in the translations, and the truth is usually you forget what you translated. Right. Because we're kind of like instruments. You're like a pipe with water going through. You know, the pipe doesn't remember what went through it. Uh, a week later, I wouldn't remember. But they were right in that I was not patriotic in the way my dad had been. I view myself as patriotic now, but I redefine patriotism in a way that's perhaps not very popular. I think that to truly be patriotic is to be critical and to be yeah. exercise critical thinking and say, wait a minute, should we really be doing all this? Americans don't think about foreign policy very much. And I guess because I was raised in it, I do. And now my yeah. career as an interpreter, I've been exposed to it more. And I see that it feels like everywhere we've gone in trying to help, whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan or the war on drugs in Colombia or Mexico, it's a worse mess than when we went in there. It doesn't seem to yeah. work, but I'm just putting that out there as an example of being critical in a well-intentioned yeah. way. I do still believe that this is the best system. I'm fervently pro-freedom. Well, as you aged with your dad... 
Would you guys talk about politics? It's interesting that you should ask that because we did talk about it a lot when I was growing up. The topic of dinner conversation in my family was foreign policy, what was going on in South Africa, apartheid and stuff like that. And it got pretty loud and almost violent verbally sometimes. Yeah. I can remember my dad in an argument about South Africa and apartheid because that was happening during my teenage years, telling me about the white Afrikaans going into South Africa and surviving against the Zulu who would put their enemies' heads on pikes to leave as warnings. And it was, it shocked me. I mean, I was 16 or 17 years old. It was kind of shocking. So we had vociferous arguments. And then after I severed my relationship with the CIA and I went to California and it kind of severed with my dad as much as you do to sort of separate and grow up. To grow up. And yeah. living in California, it's far away from everything. And I started my own career and had children. I did not discuss politics with my dad. And we didn't talk about the CIA very much. He wanted to tell stories when he was retired. And I didn't want to hear them. Mm. And I realize now looking back that I think I put all of that in a little box and put it in the basement of my mind, the whole CIA thing. I never talked about it to colleagues or friends. I didn't talk about my growing up years or any of the stories. It took me years to be able to say my father worked for the CIA. I used to say he was a cold warrior at first (laughs) as a euphemism because people don't always react very well either. And I was afraid of being judged. When he was dying, I one of the last conversations I had with him, we did talk about nuclear uh, disarmament and some things like that. Mm-hmm. And he had always said to me that I was naive mm. to be in favor of unilateral nuclear disarmament. And I always accepted his argument that I was naive. And here I am in my 40s now with three kids and 20 years of a career behind me. I guess I still needed his respect and approval. I felt the need to say, you know what? I am not naive. I have this opinion. I know it's radical. I know it may sound crazy, but I've been in international affairs for my whole career and I grew up watching you. So this is not an uninformed opinion. I realize it may not be possible now, but it's worth talking about. We stopped talking about it for a while, but I felt the need before he died to get his respect that I had earned the right to have opinions in foreign affairs. And interestingly, he did see me. He acknowledged it. And it meant a lot to me, actually. I'm getting a little emotional here. I'm sorry. I No, that's it's so well stated. I mean, just to be able to have that acknowledgement. I think we all need that from our fathers. Always. And yeah. I guess it doesn't matter how old you are or how many years of career or how many kids of your own you've had. Sometimes you still need their approval in some areas. And I guess the mm-hmm. area for me with my dad was about foreign policy more than like parenting or other issues you might want to discuss with your parents. So he has an interesting story. Like he eventually retired, right? Yes, he And did. so what did he do in retirement for his second act? Well, he always loved boats. We crossed the Atlantic together on a small sailboat that he had bought and fixed up from Portugal back to the United States. So he bought a boat in retirement and it was called Captain Andy's and he had this, it was, it was not a sailboat. It was more of a motorboat, a big boat. And he would take kids out uh-huh. on ecological tours. He actually hired a biologist to explain all about ecology and things like that and help them look at shells and that sort of thing. And he would take people on dolphin watches and things like that. And he was very happy doing that. There were some colleagues of his actually that had retired that he was still friends with and saw. The man who hired me to be a translator 
in Paris was a friend of my father's, which is why he was helping me, to be honest. And, you know, it was a family thing, loyalty to one's own, help your colleague's daughter put her way through her master's degree. His name was Tom White, and he, he lived in the North Carolina area as well. And we did get together a couple of times and, yeah. you know, talk about old times a little bit, which was kind of fun. One other thing that's sort of interesting is that at the end of my father's career, so his last posting was to the Seychelles, which uh, I didn't know where they were yeah, where's the <laughs> until, he, until he went there. A lot of places we went, I didn't know where Uruguay was either until we looked it up on the map. The Seychelles are some islands. It's an island nation off the coast of Kenya, East Africa, in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And it's got Indian influence and Chinese and various kinds of influence. So it's warm there, very tropical, kind of a paradise, really. And that's where he was after the wall came down. Of course, the whole raison d'etre of the CIA changed. And they went through a phase where they were, I think, having an identity crisis or a crisis of purpose. Right. You know, what, what are we doing here? And also the other thing that was changing a lot was they were getting a lot more technologically oriented, which my dad didn't like being an older guy, but also because he really thought that human intelligence was important. And he would, he would rail against, you know, the technology. So his last posting was in this paradise place and he was basically waiting to retire. And his counterpart in the KGB was a guy named Boris. Boris sure. was the same age and his counterpart of the KGB, and he was also waiting to retire. And of course, the KGB was also in a state of disarray because the Soviet Union had collapsed and they didn't have any purpose either. <laughs> so he was waiting to retire and they understood each other better, really, than the outside world. Even their wives could understand them wow. because they had been trained in the same kind of trade craft and been mm -hmm. doing the same job, really. And even in during his career... I remember seeing the human side of the KGB because they would come for dinner and stuff and they would try and drink each other under the table. My dad would always have an advantage if it was whiskey and the Russians had an advantage if it was vodka. I mean, you really saw that it was yeah. a game. It was a dangerous game. People could die, but they had empathy for each other at some level too. I guess it's probably like companies like maybe people at Apple and Facebook or Google they're all in the same business. They understand each yeah. other better probably than the rest of us do, you know. But I was very amused by the fact that he and Boris were such good friends. That is so fascinating. They were honest with each other, I think, in talking about yeah. things. I know they reflected on the psychological and emotional changes they had undergone. My father was an instructor at one point, training other CIA operatives. And I dated some of his students mm -hmm. when I was in college. And I think the real reason they liked to go out with me is because they could be honest with me and they didn't have to put on the facade, but I, I kind of mocked them. It's like what you're having trouble dating normal girls because you can't lie about what you do for a living. I mean, come on, that's the basics. I started doing this when I was 10. What's your problem? So it's it, really interesting to see these guys. They were like my dad and his colleagues, very patriotic, very idealistic. These are people who are willing mm -hmm. to serve their countries and not get recognition for it. You have to be really yeah. sincere, I think, and genuine in your beliefs to do that. They were so honest. They had a lot of integrity. These were people with a very high moral standard, so much so that they had trouble lying about their jobs to some date. But then they turned into my dad and his friends their 40s and early 50s, pretty cynical. You know, my dad referred to himself as a legalized criminal mm. at one point. 
because he did things that were illegal, but he was doing them at the behest of the U.S. government. And Tom White, my boss in Paris, when I told him about my experience on the lie detector test, and I was really upset because I felt like I hadn't done well. And he told me that I had. He said I'd survived six hours, which is pretty good. But I said, well, don't they put you through a lie detector test? And doesn't that worry you? Isn't it stressful for you? And he threw up his arms in the air and he's like, they're asking me questions like, have I done anything for which I could be blackmailed? Of course I have. That's the job. Right. <laughs> you know? so, yeah. So you go from this very earnest, genuine, full of integrity place to this very jaded place where I think one of the things that Boris and my dad, well, I noticed and, and they talked about was their loss of spontaneity. They couldn't just react to something. They always would think about how that would play on the other person. What might be the consequences? Do I want them to know this about me? It's like the cost of a lifetime of being a manipulator, you know, or being good at being manipulative. Like you don't even trust yourself after a while or something. I don't know if he thought of himself as a manipulator. I very much was paranoid about that after I grew up not manipulating people and I've become excessively honest. It's only now as I'm getting a little older that I'm realizing that honesty doesn't mean that you have to say everything and it doesn't mean you have to say it in black and white or blunt terms that you can be diplomatic <laughs> and still be honest, so to which took yeah. me a while to figure out I wasn't very diplomatic before and that Honesty doesn't necessarily prevent me from being manipulative or being accused of being manipulative. I feel like I've always been mm -hmm. honest with my kids, but my teenagers did accuse me of manipulating. And I, imagine my shock and heart. It's like I spent my whole life trying not to be manipulative, and now you're saying I'm manipulative. So I'm, I'm beginning to think maybe being manipulative is inevitable. Yeah, or maybe that's a teenager being manipulative well, of There's mom, that too, you know? there's that too. But I think all human beings, we have wants and desires, and sometimes we need other people to help us achieve those desires. And so inadvertently even, we might manipulate. I try not to. I try to just say it out loud. I would like this. Can you help me, please? But it's hard. And sometimes even when I think I'm being polite, would you mind doing the dishes? It's construed <laughs> as... <laughs> Either being indirect or manipulative. Yeah, no. I think that's some <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> that's just bullshit. Okay. <laughs> You're good. You have two children? I actually have three boys. You Three boys. Okay, so your dad was... Was your dad alive? Really? Yes, he saw all of them. He oh, was good. closest to my oldest one, who's now 28. They were... I guess my youngest was about eight when he died. But he had a degenerative disease, so for the last few years of his life, we knew he wasn't going to be able to live much longer. And I, I went back to see him every six months, even though I was living in Geneva at the time, and I would take one child with me so that he could get some one-on-one -on -one time with them. He was an artist also. I have actually a lot of his artwork in my house, and he did that when he retired. He had more time to go back to that. And he liked sculpture, and he made these cute little frog things with the kids in his, he had a studio in the back yeah. of his house that he built. He liked to tinker and, and build things. So when he stopped tinkering on the boat, because he couldn't with his disease, he started tinkering with sculptures and pottery and uh -huh. stuff like that. So it was nice, yeah. It's just they didn't get enough time with him. So I think I mentioned at the beginning, he was buried in Arlington Cemetery. 
So we actually went and had the full blown mm-hmm. service with the three gun salute and all that stuff. And I think it had a big impact on my boys. My middle son wanted to join the Navy actually after that, wow. because I think he was inspired to service to his country. I think it was an inspiration, that service. I'm glad that they do that for American families yeah. at Arlington. Actually, when they did the three gun salute, it felt like, cause I had been grieving because they don't do it right away. There's a waiting list to do it to so many people. Um, it's like the shots went through my body. It's yeah. so loud and so visceral, but it also felt like it shot the grief out of me because I had mm. a very hard time when my father died, even though I knew he was going to. They say there's different stages, anger and various other things. For me, there was a lot of anger in the beginning and it was hard. And I think, honestly, I, th- I think this is probably true of a lot of memoirs. I think part of why I wrote my memoir mm-hmm. was as a tribute to him in a way, or it was yeah. my way of processing, even though I didn't really start it until five years after he died. I think it's been a slow process for me to process all of the things that we went through as a family with him serving the U.S. government the way he did. And so what do you do for a living these days? Well, it's interesting that you should ask that question. So my father asked me to keep his secrets. Mm-hmm. And now I'm in a job where I keep secrets too, mm-hmm. in that I'm an interpreter. And so I take what people say from one language and put it into another. I do a lot of diplomatic interpreting. I have worked for both secretary generals, the current one, Antonio Guterres, a little bit, but he speaks fluent French and Spanish already. So it's usually for the people he's talking to. But the former uh, secretary general of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, did not speak Spanish and was less comfortable in French, especially dealing with African leaders. So I traveled around Africa with him a lot and interpreted between him and different African heads of state, as well as the last three French presidents or prime ministers. And everything that we hear as interpreters has to be kept secret. Uh, We're like priests or psychologists. We have a professional code of ethics, which is that we are not allowed to talk about anything we hear, even if we do remember it. And we're not even allowed to, in the training, I remember they told us, sometimes you work meals, you work a lunch or a dinner for somebody. And they said, Mm -hmm. if somebody asks you, you know, did uh, the minister of environment, what did he have for lunch? You can't even answer that question because maybe he didn't eat the fish and he's made some statement about fish that you don't know about. I don't know if you remember Bush and the broccoli, Uh, (laughs) kind of like that. And actually, interestingly, that came up with President Trump and Putin. They had a conversation Mm -hmm. where it was just the two of them. These are called bilaterals, where the only person in the room was the interpreter. And she took notes. We have a system, a one way of interpreting is called consecutive, where we listen to the whole thing and take notes, and then we give the whole speech back. They asked her for her notes and asked her to verify what Trump said about what had happened with Putin, and she wouldn't do it, which I was very pleased to read about in the paper that she had upheld our professional standard because it protects all of us, because otherwise people can't have a private conversation if they can't trust the interpreter to keep their confidences. So I've gone from keeping one person's secrets to another. I think I've replaced my father with my clients. But you're also a writer and an investigator. Like, yes, this is true. Well, I will be retiring soon. Mm -hmm. And so I will be even freer. Even in retirement, I won't write about anything I've heard or seen. I can write about my profession if I want to, and certainly maybe express my views on American foreign policy, but I wouldn't, would never betray the confidences of the people that I've worked for. Tell Me About Your Father and Daddy Issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, 
and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And for bonus content, go to patreon.com slash, you guessed it, Tell Me About Your Father, where for as little as $3, you'll get access to an extra episode of Daddy Issues every month. Oh, and Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think.